Hello everyone, this is Big Reed with another episode of Gaming's Lost Memories. This is episode 14, Microsoft's Road to Becoming a Third-Party Publisher. Uh, this will be part one and we'll be focusing on kind of the history of the Xbox, some of my personal experiences with it, but the original Xbox. So, uh, kind of the thought process for this one was recently... Microsoft announced that four of their exclusive titles would be going, I don't want to say third party, but will be on the PlayStation 5 and the Nintendo Switch. <clears throat> so for those who have been playing video games for a, a long time, so for me it's over 30 years, probably close to like 32, <laughs> rocking out the original Super Mario Brothers on the NES back in the day when I was four. Uh this is unique and this doesn't happen, you know, very often. Um, so I kind of wanted to set the groundwork because based upon just the news and everyone out there, it, it does seem that people are surprised by this and the way that Microsoft is handling it just makes me believe that this is their long-term path and that if these four titles are successful, and they can have a good working relationship with Sony, you know, and Nintendo on, you know, for Nintendo, whatever their next console is going to be, which is probably coming out soon, that I think they might be looking to transition away from hardware. And I think why this is so meaningful and interesting and important is, you know, the last major company of this current video game industry. And keep in mind, <clears throat> just for historical purposes and for like this podcast, the current video game industry is basically the NES on. So everything before that, the market crashed and like a Phoenix from the fire, Nintendo was like, hey, we're going to put, you know, stability and um, we're going to be kind of in quality control with our developers and third party developers. And even if that means, you know, kind of us being firm or mean to them, like we're going to have a level of quality control. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> you know, with the Nintendo Entertainment System. But so <clears throat> counting, you know, from the NES on, this has basically happened one time with Sega, who is also a part of this story, right? So it was a really big deal when Sega was essentially going to go out of business and they got really lucky, but we're not going to focus on that too much. It is important because it kind of paved the way for the Xbox and Microsoft to come in. But let's let's take it back. So the Xbox is part of the sixth generation of uh, consoles, right? Sixth, sixth generation of the video game industry. And generally how the video game industry would work is, you know, everybody would release their hardware, and that was the current generation. You know, it would last, what, five years or so, I think, kind of was the average there. And then as the new hardware came out, because, you know, games required more power and everything like that, you'd have your next console releases. That would be the next generation. Uh, it was funny. My fiance was in here um, and <laughs> I was a little too embarrassed to do this podcast in front of her. So she she went upstairs, which was much appreciated. But I, I looked over to her and I'm like, hey, the the sixth generation, uh, <laughs> It might be my favorite. So you got the Xbox, Dreamcast, PlayStation 2, and the GameCube. I'm like, this one might be my favorite. I don't know if it's the best. You could probably argue, you know, Super Nintendo, Genesis, etc. There's probably a lot you could argue, to be honest. But um, hold on, I'm going to adjust the audio here just real quick. There we go. 
Um, but I looked at I looked at her and I'm like, I think this one might be my favorite. And it's so interesting and turbulent. And there was changes. You literally had, you know, uh, Sega exit the hardware business and Microsoft, you know, come in guns a blazing. So the original Xbox is interesting. It is not a console that I owned uh, or purchased myself when it first released. And this was uh, kind of funny because this generation was the first generation where um, I purchased what I owned fully. So there were no, you know, um, Christmas gifts, birthday gifts, you know, Hail Mary, <laughs> you know, your Nintendo 64. Um, so this generation was interesting. Um, because I had to be, you know, very selective. So I always kind of lean towards Nintendo regardless. So, you know, it kind of is what it is there. So obviously, you know, I saved up my money through my paper out and bought a Nintendo GameCube. But I remember seeing, um, during that generation, Xbox fans emerging, which was really interesting. So Nintendo has a long storied history. PlayStation to some degree did as well because the original PlayStation, I mean, God, you had Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy, like there was just so many titles and that thing sold like hotcakes. So they came in guns blazing. So there were PlayStation fans. There were Nintendo fans. And it was interesting watching a segment that may have felt unrepresented, um, like your more traditional uh, American, I guess, you know what I mean? Like it's an American product. Uh, Sony and Nintendo are both Japanese companies and it was it marketed more of like a PC. So how did it come to be? Well, so we got to go back to the Dreamcast, right? Sega. God, I love Sega. Sega to keep it just to the sixth generation. And I think it was 1999 released the Sega Dreamcast and this was it. The chips were down. They did not have money. <laughs> Things were not going well. And they were banking on everything happening, good or bad, with the Sega Dreamcast. They were either going to sink or they were going to swim. Like, this was it. Right? Sadly, with the Dreamcast, and you get a sense of nostalgia with it now, it didn't work out for Sega. And they had to go announce to their board... And boy, did they get lucky through various means. But we'll kind of try to keep this towards Microsoft. They got lucky. Their debt was forgiven. Uh, there was one gentleman, can't remember his name off the top of my head, that had so much of their debt and he forgave it on his deathbed. And that allowed them to transition into a third-party developer. And the similarities with Microsoft right now, when Sega announced that to their board, they walked out. Their executive board that ran the company stood up and walked out of the conference room when they were being told that, hey, we're exiting, we're, we're, we're selling the Dreamcast. They sold it as low as 29 bucks to get it off the shelves to get rid of it after they you know, were discontinuing the hardware. The board walked out. That is absolutely crazy. And it's hard to imagine you know, how impactful this was because... From our perspective, from gamers, you know, the nerds, the people who, you know, 
are <laughs> that love video games that either you know grew up with this or you you found your love in it some way and it, you have your console wars and you have like oh well I like Sega because Sonic's faster than Mario. You have that, but you also have to realize that this is a company. You know, this is a business. This is a publicly traded you know company, and this decision, while you know you might have fanboys, so to speak, of saying, yay, Sega's gone, my hardware won, this impacted people. And the thought of Sega putting their exclusive content on other consoles greatly upset their board. And Japan is very unique. There is a lot of pride. There are people, you know, Nintendo's early president during the sixth generation as well was like an old samurai. He was like, we're going to <laughs> do what we want to do and we believe in ourselves and we are willing to die, you know, by our sword. And it was stubborn, almost. Sega exits, right? This opens the pathway where there's a little bit of a vacuum. People kind of have gotten used to there being three console options, which is interesting, right? Because for a while there, it was only Nintendo. Sega eventually came in. Nintendo was the major player. Then Nintendo and Sony were working on a <laughs> CD-ROM-based Super Nintendo, and it didn't work out. And Sony released the PlayStation, and holy smokes, there's this other mature market that maybe Nintendo didn't see. But the point is, is people kind of got accustomed to there being three pieces of hardware, three hardware options. So this kind of created a little bit of a vacuum. And Microsoft took notice. They had been kind of looking at this play out, and they started seeing that video game consoles were dominating the living room, and they were becoming more and more powerful. So technically, they've always been computers. That's basically what a video game console is. It's a really low-cost personal computer that, you know, runs an operating system and plays video games, right? But Microsoft's looking at this, and they're like, okay, hey, is this going to eat into our market space of personal computers? And if you look at Microsoft today, they're largely just a software company. Getting into manufacturing of hardware is risky. Hear me out here. You are inherently, and it's expensive to do so. There's a lot of, you know, product development, research and development, and then you have to finally settle on what the console specs are going to be. And then largely, it stays the same for a five-year period, right? So you have to manufacture and sign these deals to get a new processor, a new GPU, you know, how much RAM is it going to be? It's, it's expensive. Now, like, you'll have a physical platform that you have to support, with software, right? Now, Microsoft knows software, but they didn't know video games. They have a lot of success. Well, let me rephrase that. They had a lot of success with, you know, PC games and everything like that. Like people would make, you know, PC games to play on, you know, Windows-based, yada, 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 yada. But now they were going to be making a piece of hardware. And guess what happens? You make a product. You got a widget. It has a cost, right? And you have to try to price it in a way because <laughs> the video game industries I think changed a little bit in this regard but 
pricing was huge. You know, two or three hundred dollars was a lot for a console during this time. And you're you're trying to get people to purchase it, but also parents who might purchase it for their children. And they, you know, um, he already has the old Nintendo 64. We don't need to get the new one. Why would we get the new one? Well, it's got all these new games. Oh my God. It's got 3d worlds. It's got this, it's got that. So price is a factor because when you price something, there was a cost to it. Right. And the original Xbox was sold at a loss, which is absolutely fascinating. We're going to get more into this here in a second, but you have to manufacture it. You manufacture it, you have the manufacturing costs. And then each unit, you know, has a cost of the the parts and everything like that, the research and the development, like on and on and on. This was this was a gamble, but unlike Sega, Microsoft was a full business. You got Microsoft Office, you got Microsoft Windows, like they they're in a lot of businesses. Microsoft is a very profitable company. Uh, they do a lot of servers and everything now, but they had they had another business. They were buying their way into the video game industry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they they already existed as a company. So did Sony to some degree. I would say in a less successful manner than Microsoft. Microsoft's a giant company, and you know Sony kind of has their they're in everything. You know they do TVs, personal computers, but I wouldn't say they necessarily do anything particularly well. Um, but the PlayStation, incredibly successful brand, like they sold, they came out and sold, you know, a hundred million of these and take a sip of my drink real quick. So Microsoft now has to find a way to compete against Nintendo, who's been in the industry for a long time against Sony, who's coming off of the PlayStation success. Like I said, I mean, a hundred plus million, you know, units sold of that. And it kind of showed that there was a the the video game industry was growing and becoming more mainstream. Now it wouldn't be as mainstream as the the predecessors um, of this console, the seventh generation. I think is where it. I don't know if you would say it peaked, but holy smokes, everybody and their grandmother literally was gaming. But Microsoft had to had to take a gamble here, right? Like. Microsoft's viewpoint was we are concerned that video game consoles are going to get powerful enough to possibly take our market share of Windows and our personal computers and everything like that. So we want to get in, right? And this is interesting because this set a chain of events of over 20 years of hardware manufacturing that they might want to get out of now. I think they honestly, I think they have one foot out the door and the writing might be on the wall, right? Okay, let's go back to the original Xbox here. So it launches, I want to say November of 2001, and they needed a killer app. And Microsoft actually did a phenomenal job with Halo. So I did a podcast on the original Halo. Absolutely love it. Um, but they needed they needed something exclusive. So why would you purchase this, right? Why, why would you purchase it over the PlayStation, for example? So, Or why would you purchase it over the GameCube? Well, branding-wise, this was the perfect timing for this generation to happen. Because during this time frame... 
Nintendo struggled with I, I don't even know like everyone said it was kitty you know what i mean like oh it's for kids it's for this it's for that meanwhile it had you know resident evil games and everything on it but that's neither here nor there but also the 64 was coming off of a major lack of third-party support so what was available out there was a maturing market where you started having like a lot of, you know, teenagers and adults playing video games now, and they might have more mature tastes. This could be, you know, like a, a shooting games, like things like that, right? Microsoft ended up purchasing, I want to say, I, I believe they purchased Bungie or I, I, they had some type of exclusive deal, or maybe they just own Halo. It might have been a second party. That... I probably should have done just a little bit more research because um, Bungie, you know, left Microsoft, but they had to leave Halo behind. So I don't know what kind of agreement that they had there. But Halo was showcased early, earlier on, like maybe even a, few, a couple, like probably a few years before the Xbox um, released. And it was going to be an Apple exclusive. It was going to be on Apple computers. And it was just this unique, you know, sci-fi looking space shooting game. Um, it's kind of funny going back as it was actually like, you know, shown then, but you know, Microsoft came in and was like, okay, Bungie, we want that. So we're going to buy it and we're going to make this a shooting game. And this is going to be, you know, our killer application. Um, and also kind of opening the floodgates of a more mature mindset. And I think that's ultimately what they ended up kind of capturing was your traditional, um, male American <laughs> mindset where they might not have liked, you know, the Japanese style of, you know, video games or the, all the colors and everything like that. And I think the PlayStation does a pretty good job at that as well. I, I think Sony has done a really good job of making the PlayStation a Japanese brand. Cause that's what it is, but popular in Japan but also very and probably even more popular in, you know, North America and Europe and everything like that. Like it, it doesn't feel like a Japanese brand where I feel like Nintendo definitely had that um, feeling, especially like during this time uh, as well. Like I, I think uh, Mario now, you know, you go to this current generation, I, I feel like Nintendo has kind of matched Sony in that regard where everybody's just like, oh, it's Mario. Like everybody knows Mario. You know what I mean? But the the group that was kind of drawn to the Xbox, I feel, wasn't necessarily represented by three Japanese companies, right? So you kind of had your, like, average American dude, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so this was, you know, kind of interesting. So the Xbox launches, and at this time, the Xbox and Microsoft were tied together, Okay. And I think this is important as we go through these parts that Microsoft was the driving factor of this console. They were the driving factor of making this a success. And I mean, geez, like Bill Gates was handing them out at launch. You know what I mean? Um, as time went on, that kind of changed and they wanted to have Xbox kind of exist on its own, which, you know, then part three, when we probably get to it, we'll kind of show that it hurt them a little bit. But the original Xbox comes out, and I think it launched before the GameCube, but in the same month. So it launched in the same month as the GameCube. Now keep in mind, the PlayStation 2 
came out a year prior and it was selling like gangbusters. So you kind of see what happened the previous gen, the PlayStation, the original PlayStation and the PlayStation 2. It, the PlayStation 2 is going to be the same. It's going to be wildly successful. I, I remember watching a news article like a million years ago and Sony's president was they were airdropping them in uh, via helicopter like crates of PlayStations and they were just like dropping them off in like cities and stuff like that. It was absolutely crazy. But Microsoft launched the Xbox and it was successful. I want to say in the launch quarter or the launch like little time frame, I think it sold, you know, 1.5 million units, which holy smokes, what just happened? This is turning out to be more popular than the GameCube and way more popular than the Dreamcast was. Now, the Dreamcast had a great launch and everything like that, but it immediately fizzled out. So the Xbox had some legs, which was good. The original Halo absolutely an incredible game <laughs> so not only did you know microsoft have really good hardware you know they had a few pieces of software that kind of showed like hey you know this thing can be powerful um and this can also have some pretty good games now the games were definitely um western so what i mean by that is is you did have some you know jap obviously there were japanese games on it and everything like that but i think this is where you start seeing the I, I would call it like a fracturing of the only good games that exist come from Japan. And this is kind of where you saw more powerful hardware and the success of the Western developer, right? I want to say, I think Morrowind, um, so Elder Scrolls 3, I think it was exclusive on the Xbox, uh, PC as well, but it was the console exclusive because it was powerful. Now... <laughs> The original Xbox, let's talk about what it looked like in some of my memories from this. So this this was kind of funny because like I remember the console coming out and I remember you had all three. Uh, I like the GameCube. I, honestly, I, I like them all for various reasons, but I had to pick one, save my money up, and I bought a GameCube. Um, now, the GameCube was great, but you could see the way the Nintendo designed the controller that it wasn't ready for the modern style of game that was going to absolutely get even more popular now and into the next generation. And that was your shooter style games, your mature, you know, rated games and everything like that. You know, Nintendo didn't have kind of like the correct layout that would be kind of, that would honestly become kind of the standard template for probably the next 20 years or so. Um, Microsoft had the, Worst controller. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the controller a little bit here. Um, and then eventually they had the best controller, arguably. Uh, I think the Xbox 360, Xbox One. I mean, even now, I, I still think the Xbox controller is probably the best one. But holy smokes, here's my memory of the original Xbox controller and the original Xbox. They were just huge. I So basically, Microsoft just used PC parts. So they went in this, they went, and, and listen, consoles are PCs. So that, that's basically what they are. They're just computers. But historically, part of designing the console was how it looked. And this is going to be a blast from the past because I, I don't know if this really matters that much anymore. Um, and with the, I'll give you a great example. With the launch of the Wii U, 
they didn't show the actual console. So people were kind of confused when they announced it because they were like, okay, is it just this tablet? Like, what is it? And, and there was like one picture where it was kind of like tucked behind on a shelf and you could barely see it. And Reggie fils I remember somebody interviewing him and they were like, so what's the console look like? And Reggie's just like, why does that matter? It's just a box. And that's really what it is. And listen, the Xbox, Microsoft took that to heart. They're like, I don't know. It's a box. They use like full-blown PC parts. Like they didn't really try to, <laughs> they weren't very effective and aesthetically at making the Xbox look nice. Now it does look cool. Don't get me wrong. Like you look at the Xbox and you're like, that looks cool, but it was just huge with giant PC parts in it. And I remember me and my one buddy, we were talking about like, you know, <laughs> just back during the console wars, you would kind of like, you know, poke fun at what you could poke fun at. And one of them was, you know, the GameCube had a handle, haha, it's a purse. But I'm like, listen, you can pick that thing up and walk around with it. And like, if you're going to, you know, smash tournament or playing video games, like you can carry it around. It's great. Even the, the PlayStation 2, a unique looking design, but it's kind of become iconic with how, you know, modular, not much, not modular, um, but just how it looks like, you know, one of the parts is longer, like it, it's really neat looking, but they baked it in, they, they made it, there's something artistic about it, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, we need to make it look unique and evoke emotion, and when you look at this console... That, that might have kind of gone out the window now. <laughs> but during this time, it was kind of important. And uh, I just remember uh, my buddy telling me a story. Um, and he was like, yeah, I was at Walmart. And this this uh, mother was buying her son a game console. And he wanted the Xbox. So he's like, Xbox, yeah. And he just remembers like the representative from Walmart like grabbing the Xbox and like handing it to the kid. And the kid, like it almost crushing him basically. Like, it's just this huge, heavy, giant box and Microsoft gaming like an American company. And they're like, make it powerful and jam everything in there. Oh, it's a huge rectangle. <laughs> okay, uh, maybe design the outside with a big, cool looking X. But I just remember uh, <laughs> the imagery of him telling me this story. And this like kid, he's like, the kid almost like fell over. He was like struggling to hold it because he's like 10. <laughs> As this guy is handing him like your here's your game console. He's like, oh my god. He's like, I just remember it crushing him. So the design of the console was kind of interesting. And listen, it worked. At the end of the day, it is a box. But compared to the GameCube and compared to the PlayStation, you can kind of see the mentality of the different approach, just anesthetically, of what the physical appearance of the console is. Right? The second thing, the design of the uh, controller. Oh my God. Like luckily it was rectified very quickly, but they had the original Xbox controller and this was just a giant, I guess what you would call a meme now back in the day where everybody was trolling it. You know, I remember Penny Arcade, shout out to Penny Arcade. I, it's, that is a blast from the past and I feel like some of their comics they would do. So Penny Arcade was, um, it's a website it still exists. Uh, and there's two friends that kind of created one was more artistic and one wrote the articles, uh, essentially. They were just really interesting. It reminded me of me and, uh, you know, my friend as well. Like we kind of like, you know, fit that the way we would talk about things. Cause it'd be so funny. We'd be just like shooting the breeze and making jokes about video games. And then we'd see like a comic and we're like, Oh my God, <laughs> like this is perfect. Like they're, they're having the same thoughts. They're just way more artistically, uh, 
um, better at expressing it. But uh, a lot like I don't know anybody that liked that controller. And I feel like Microsoft got really lucky. And I, I think what happened was for the for the Japanese launch, which I mean, honestly, they could have just skipped like Xbox doesn't even need to be in Japan. It sells like one percent of what it sells everywhere else. It just never caught on over there, even though, you know, it, Microsoft did actually do a great job of getting some, you know, Japanese style games like their Sega ended up making a lot of Xbox games. Um, you know, like Panzer Dragoon, I believe was on there. So it, it had, it had games. And then eventually, you know, with the Xbox 360, it would become even crazier. Like Japanese developers basically had to develop for the Xbox 360. It was the dominant brand for the you know first few years after the Xbox. Um, but it just really didn't catch on there. But I believe for the Japanese market, they made a smaller controller. And the, so the, the original controller was nicknamed the Duke. And I I mean, outside of a giant, like just some, I don't even know what you would call it. Um, just giant, just, I can't even think of like a a funny name, like the Duke, I feel like names it perfectly. Um, but it was two things. It was physically massive and I have average size hands. So, you know, maybe some people thought it was comfortable, but it, the second part was it didn't feel like it was designed to be held. And your controller is your gateway to the gameplay, right? So I used to write video game reviews back in the day, and gameplay is the absolutely most important part, in my opinion, of a video game. It's more important than story. It's more important than graphics. It's more important than sounds. More, it's the most important. Is your game fun to play, right? The Xbox, the first freaking year, you, uh, you couldn't play it. <laughs> and like I remember distinctly. So my my one uh, my other friend Joe, growing up, he was drawn to the Xbox. So it was interesting, kind of seeing like our paths split there in terms of like what we liked. I like Japanese style games, I like colorful games, I like Nintendo games, and he enjoyed your more mature, you know, Western style, you know, video game. And I just remember, and I have fond memories of this, and maybe we'll just kind of like jump into it, Um, playing Halo for the first time. And he's like, dude, this game's amazing. You're going to love it. Like, it's good. We can play through the campaign together. And I just remember him using the other controller. So he had two controllers. One was the Duke and one was the new one. And so this is probably like 2002, 2003-ish. And I just remember not even being able to like utilize the controller. I've never experienced a controller quite like that. Like even with something weird, like the Wii remote, it was designed to be held. Like it felt like it was designed to be in a human hand. The original Xbox controller, I just, I I don't know how that made it out of the testing phase. Or if somebody with just absolutely giant hands, like basketball player hands, was utilizing it that is the one thing where i can't really understand honestly how that made it out of research and development okay considering that the next iteration the s controller while it was still a little bulky actually felt like it was designed to fit in your hand like it actually felt relatively comfortable to hold especially in comparison to the Duke, the original Xbox controller. I, I remember looking at Joe and I'm like, dude, 
I really want to play this game. I'm like, but I can't use this controller. Can you please use this controller? And he's like, oh, dude, yeah, I can use that controller. Fine. I'm like, oh, my God. It changed my experience. So my kind of original experience with the Xbox was playing the campaign um, with my buddy of Halo. Right. So I remember being in my mother's living room. So this is what? 2000. This might have been 2002, I think. So give me a second. I'm going to take a sip here. This might have been um, 2002, I believe. So this is about two years into the PlayStation and about a year into the GameCube and the Xbox. So things are starting to kind of get figured out. Um, like you're kind of starting to see the trajectory of what you know Microsoft's going to do with the Xbox. But one thing that Sega kind of saw that maybe the PlayStation and the GameCube didn't see was couch co-op transitioning with that same mindset into online play. Sega had the opportunity to save about 15 bucks, right, off of each Dreamcast unit sold and instead put a 56k modem in that bad boy. And you know, they had Fantasy Star online and they had some online services. It was incredibly unique and just they were way ahead of their time. But you can kind of see the path that Microsoft was looking at. It wasn't necessarily just video games. You know, hey, we're going to release a piece of hardware and release software to sell that hardware. That had to happen, of course, because that's just kind of how the video game industry operates, right? But what they saw was a path to players from around the world being able to be united and couch co-op would become global. Okay? So what's important about that is I remember looking back to Joe bringing his Xbox over. And I remember, you know, I told him, so we're going to have a sleepover, right? And we're just going to crash in the living room. My mother's bedroom was right next door. I feel so terrible for her because we're just like, you know blasting aliens and being loud and drinking Mountain Dew and eating Domino's pizza. Um, but I remember, you know, moving the couch over and putting it like right in front of the TV. And I remember like Joe getting there, you know, unpacking his console. And that is one of my favorite things of the previous generations uh, is somebody bringing their console over and just hooking it up. And oh my God, like keep in mind. So... <laughs> This is going to be a throwback, so I don't know if anyone else can kind of relate to this, but TVs didn't necessarily have composite cables, so the red, yellow, white wires that kind of plug in. Yeah, TVs didn't have those. <laughs> like, TVs eventually had those, but the technology, there was like a gap. So I'm pretty sure our living room TV had a uh, had the cable line which you could hook up game consoles through the cable line with a little like RF adapter tool. So you would take your cable where your, you know, where your TV shows come from. You'd plug it into this adapter. You plug the console into it and then you plug that into the TV. 
Or if you had a VCR, you could technically hook the game console up through the VCR that we had with the composite cables and display it through the TV. And I think that's the we either use that RF adapter. So to, to hook it up, first of all, we couldn't even like just plug it in. Like everything's so easy now with HDMI. Like, oh, hey, here's an HDMI slot. Here's an HDMI, HDMI cable, everything. No, we're hooking this bad boy up. I'm like 99% certain I had to hook it up through our VCR, which is just freaking hilarious. So you'd have to like plug it into your VCR, turn the VCR on, then turn the TV on on channel three or, you know, whatever to get it to play. But I remember, you know, we, we took the couch, lined it up in front of the TV, He's unpacking this thing. He's unpacking the Duke and dropped it and broke his foot when it hit his foot. But we we get everything hooked up. We're hooking the Xbox up. And I re- remember from that experience in particular that there was going to be something with this type of multiplayer, right? So you would always have couch cop, right? You sit down, you play Mario Kart, you know, you play Smash Brothers, you everyone would be sitting in front of the TV playing together. But what if you can't be around that person? And the Xbox had something called Xbox Live, right? An online uh, service where you could like, you know, download up game updates and I don't even know what it was originally used for during like the first couple years. Um it blew up with Halo 2. So we'll talk about that in a second. But you could kind of see Microsoft's path of like, hey, we're going to have games, of course. But I felt like they had their long-term vision of uniting everything via the internet. I really think with Xbox Live, with you know the Xbox, they were really trying to continue Sega's idea. Sega had the idea. It was probably wrong timing. I don't think the world was ready for it. But Microsoft, this is their bread and butter. Like, they know all about the internet. They know all about personal computers. And they really came at this of like, hey, we're going to figure this video game thing out. So in that moment, you know, we fire up the game. We got two Master Chiefs, and it's open. So this is kind of interesting, right? We're used to video games that have levels, right? You know, level one. I'm going to run right until I reach the flagpole or RPGs where there might be like, you know, a big open world map, but there's a lot of, you know, structure there and and keep in mind, JRPGs are probably my favorite genre by a mile, but a genre that became one of my favorites still to this day, probably top five for me is first person shooters. And it started with Halo. Microsoft had something there. They had the workings of, okay, so you have this big, open, sandboxy environment. We can bring, you know, four people together. And guess what? You could hook Xboxes together via a LAN cable, right? And you could play, like, 4v4 Halo, which, you know, me and my buddies, you know, did and everything like that. I'll share a little bit more, you know, kind of my personal history with this as well. But I remember sitting on that couch, pizza, you know, on the ground, eating Domino's pizza and drinking Mountain Dew or whatever we had and we're, we're playing through the campaign I just remember you know you you get through that opening sequence that ship and then you land I think on the halo ring and it's just open you're you're looking around and you're like whoa where are we there's like so much space you could even argue in the original halo there may might have been a little too much space because <laughs> you'd always have to kind of like hop in a warthog and drive around and try to find the next area but it was so open and you would go into these skirmishes and 
there wasn't really a designed path to success. It was you start you sneak up on the aliens, start shooting at them, you run out of ammo, you pick up an alien weapon like it, it was just sandboxy. So it was incredible. But I could see, you know, us kind of playing that together and just there was something there. Like I could feel that it was going to become something more, not necessarily just in terms of the Halo franchise, but that like this is going to be something people play together competitively or against each other. Cause you could, I believe you could do multiplayer in the original Halo. Um, I think cause I, I, you know, we'd be, you know, killing each other one-on-one, -on -one, which is like the worst. I love when it's like four V four, but so yeah, we're, you know, sitting there and just playing that. I'm like, this game is absolutely incredible. And like, we're just, you know, hooting and hollering and having a great time. And I think we probably, geez, Louise, like when he got there, we played until I, I passed out. I, I don't, we probably beat 60% of the campaign or, or more in a setting, you know, completely kind of going into a blind. Now he had played it. No, we might've even been further. I think we were pretty far along. Like, I think it didn't take us that long to beat it the next day. But it was like nine hours. It was like eight eight hours, nine hours or so. And I just remember like sitting there on the couch and I, I go to bed early now. <laughs> and I think I was always kind of like sleepy early. But I just remember like falling asleep and I wake up and as like if one person progressed to the next checkpoint, they would teleport you there. And I would just be like talking like half asleep. But I just have such fond memories of that experience. And you could kind of see like what the Xbox would become for me personally. And this is kind of a viewpoint that that I have in general. I don't think Microsoft has the luxury necessarily. I think they do a little bit of the nostalgia factor. Now, what I mean by that is due to the storied kind of history and age of, you know, even the PlayStation, but Nintendo and a lot of these companies, you know, say like, you know, say Sega with Sonic, right? Sonic's old. You know, Mario's 35 years old. You know, Link and Zelda, the Zelda series, that's 35 years old. Castlevania's 35 years old. Metal Gear Solid's 35 years old. There's a lot of history that Microsoft had a different trajectory on. They don't, they don't have, I, I personally feel that they don't have the nostalgia factor, which I think during, you know, a turbulent time makes it a little bit harder to weather because they might not have the history like uh, I'll give you an example. You know, name five Microsoft characters that are only exclusive to Microsoft. What do you got like Master Chief? Blinks the cat. <laughs> right? You you can't even say Banjo-Kazooie because everyone remembers Banjo-Kazooie from when it was good back in the 64 days. So you kind of look at this and what does Microsoft have in terms of Xbox from a nostalgia factor? What will carry it through? Like, do they have a loyal fan base that can carry them through a turbulent time? And I'm thinking kind of what you're seeing is not necessarily, right? So you go back to the original Xbox and Microsoft is creating its brand identity. So right now, the launch of the Xbox first year and the brand identity appears to be Halo, more mature content, Xbox Live, 
kind of digging their way in and securing and buying their way in. Keep in mind, this is very important to note. Microsoft lost $4 billion over the original Xbox to get that into the marketplace to you know, sell the console at a loss to purchase and, you know, get games and everything like that. $4 billion. Keep in mind, you know, we talked about this earlier. Sega couldn't do that. They were going out of business. They don't have another, basically Microsoft's this entirely separate company that's like, hey, we want to get into this field. It's kind of something we do. It's a little bit, you know, kind of to the side, but, you know, here's $4 billion in cash and we're we're going to do this as a long-term play. That is a gutsy, risky decision. So the first thing that I give Microsoft credit for is they tried and they were willing to take a massive financial loss. And keep in mind, Microsoft has investors and traditional investors. They have your old money investors who are like, hey, you know, we want our dividend. We want this. What, what are all these video games? There's people that invest in Microsoft that have never played or seen a video game in their life. That's not what they're about. So now they have to go to these people and say, hey, <laughs> we're going to lose $4 billion in this little side video game thing that we're doing, but don't worry. This is a long-term play. So I got to give them credit for that. And it could not have lined up more perfectly with Sega kind of exiting the console space and Microsoft entering. If that didn't happen, I don't think that the the console industry could have supported for. I I think what would have happened is Sega still would have failed, but you have four options. You're going to have people that have finite resources that are going to have to just purchase one, right? And, or people like me, it's like, hey, I'm you know I'm, I'm picking one console now. Later on down the line, because <laughs> it's gonna make everyone sad. Uh, used video games during this time. We're dirt cheap, and it might make you uh, pass out or throw up if you look back at just how low cost. Like I remember um, people buying used GameCubes for thirty bucks or like twenty bucks. You go to because like they weren't people would buy them, trade them into my uh, GameStop, and GameStop had these. So it was just a different time, right? And you could just you know, I I ended up picking up a PS2, and I never bought an Xbox. I never felt the need because all I would have wanted to play was Halo. And luckily, most of my friends had Halo. So like we would play online or not. Well, <laughs> I'm going to share this in a second, too. I think this is also kind of unique, which led to me, you know, kind of seeing Halo 2. I knew that was going to happen. Holy smokes. So I had a lot of friends that either had multiple consoles or they had an Xbox, right? So what we would normally do is, you know, for the first Halo is somebody would bring an Xbox over, everybody, we'd have enough controllers, or we'd have three controllers, and, you know, whoever lost the match, <laughs> you, uh, or if you had five people playing, okay, yeah, so we'd, we'd have four controllers, I'm remembering this now, so we had five people there, right, so myself and four other friends, and whoever lost, or had the worst score in whatever we were playing, where you could only play with four people, just keep in mind, online gaming, you could have more than four people, um, but you'd be, you know, four player co-op. We're all playing Halo. We're killing each other. Everyone's screen looking. Listen, I don't know, uh, if I'm the only one or if I'm just a dirty cheater, but yeah, I screen looked, <laughs> I don't know how much help it actually did. Cause I felt like it was disorienting, but yeah, I, I definitely screen looked I like, I, how could you not? Right. Um, 
but you know, we would all be playing whoever had the worst score, who had the, you know, the, the least amount of points or whatever, they would have to switch their controller with the next person on deck. So it, it was, we figured it out and kept it fair. But what was interesting there too. Okay. So this is where you kind of start seeing the, the puzzle pieces rolling too. So I had my first experience playing Halo for like eight hours overnight, passing out with pizza all over me. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be something. I remember going to my, my buddy's house and this was before Halo two. And there was a program you could download on the computer. Keep in mind, this is early two thousands. So I, <laughs> this was, this was something else. Internet sucked. Like everything sucked. Like the technology like wasn't great at the time. Like now it's so commonplace. Right. Um, but there was a program where you could plug your Xbox, uh, a LAN cable into the computer. It would run through this program and you could play online. So what it would do is this program would make it seem like the Xboxes were connected directly and you could play online. Now, several things here. One, it was awesome. So four of us would go in there and we're versing another four people from somewhere across the world. Um, but <laughs> it was laggy. It was crazy. Um, I, they could have been just completely better. I, I don't even know. Like I feel like everything was laggy and crazy and we were dying constantly. But it was fascinating because I'm like, okay, so hold on here. We're going to plug this box into your computer and you're going to like click some buttons on your monitor. I don't even know what you're doing, dude. And we're going to play with four other people from across the world or across the country, wherever the heck they're at. Yes. Whoa. Right? Holy smokes. What is this becoming? Funny enough, you could do it with... Uh, the uh, Mario Kart game on the GameCube as well. So give me a second. I'm going to take a drink. So that was kind of the second piece where I'm like, holy smokes, this might be, this might be something like, imagine if we could play against each other and not have to be in the same room. Cause as a teenager, it's easier because you are put into a situation where you have to be around other people, your age that share interests, you know, school, right? High school. So it's a lot easier to be like, hey, I'm going to go over to so-and-so's house and we're going to play video games together. Now, as an adult, uh, I think we kind of long for those days where there's no responsibilities or there's not a time of sense or a sense of uh, time urgency. Um, but it was really interesting kind of playing that. Now, this also led to, I'm going to sing this because it's so goofy, but uh, I was getting killed so bad in those matches that... I would just respawn and throw all the grenades I had. And literally I'm going grenade, grenade, and just like chucking grenades. And there was friendly fire on in the original Halo. So like we're just blowing everyone up. And all I hear is one of my friends go, who the heck is throwing all these grenades? <laughs> and my other friend's like, uh, well, Reed, Big Reed over here is saying grenade, grenade. So I'm guessing it's probably him. Um, but yeah, it was just really interesting. And what was really cool too uh, with the Xbox was getting people together to play Halo, you know, so two TVs, four, four versus four, two Xboxes, plugging the LAN cable in. And it was kind of surprising at how like well and coordinated you could kind of get this <laughs> like going as teenagers. Uh, my buddy Travis uh, back in the day, he did it. Honestly, uh, he did a great job of getting people to go places to do something like that. You know, he would have like a, a crew of people there, you know, everybody's playing Smash Brothers and Halo and like setting all this up. It was it was very, very cool. It was a very good time. Um, but it really kind of set that example that this might be, you know, something big. And then there was a kind of a big shift. So the the Xbox is taking market share. 
Is it coming close to the PlayStation 2? No, absolutely not. The PlayStation 2 dominated that gen. It's it's the best-selling console of all time. It's like 155 million units. I think the Xbox sold about 24 million, but here's where it gets interesting. And here's where there is something where Microsoft might have a permanent footprint for now in the video game industry. It outsold the Nintendo GameCube. Up until this point, Nintendo has been wildly successful with the NES and Super NES. Nintendo and video games, they're synonymous. Nintendo 64 comes out. Uses a cartridge format. Uh Uh-oh. Well, guess what? Nintendo and Sony, Nintendo tried to get into the CD-ROM space, right? And the Sony PlayStation was a Super Nintendo with a CD-ROM. Okay? So Nintendo and Sony were working together. Sony was acting a fool. I won't go into too much detail here, but they were acting a fool. And they were like, well, we want to keep all the software sales. And it's like, no, we're Nintendo. You're not like, <laughs> that's not how this is working. We're coming to you to put a CD-ROM in a Super Nintendo, right? So Sony takes it and they're like, well, I guess they didn't want to do anything with it. So we're just going to release our own and we'll call it a PlayStation. Okay. Nintendo 64, Nintendo falters. PlayStation outsells it like three to one, basically, right? Might have been nah, about three to one, roughly. So 100 million units sold. I think the Nintendo 64 was like 30 some million. So stark drop off. So right now, you, you know, Microsoft looking at this generation, Nintendo's faltering. Sony's coming out just absolutely dominating everything. I think, did I say Sega's faltering? Nintendo, Sega went out of business, basically. (laughs) Nintendo's faltering. But was the Xbox a success? So that's kind of the big question of this podcast to start this off. So it looks like right now, 20 years, 20 plus years later, that Microsoft might be going the route of a third party like Sega. It's fascinating. Could happen a second time in my lifetime, right? But is it a success? Did it have some exclusive games? Sure. Did it... uh, Did it sell well? Hmm. Kind of, right? 24 million units for their first console? It outsold the GameCube. Whoa, right? That's, That's crazy. Like, the... Not only there's two sectors here, you have the, the video game industry, you have the nerds, you have the people who are kind of like a part of it because it's a very unique industry. Then you have like your just standard business people like, OK, they're a technology company, right? That's how they kind of view Nintendo, Sony. So it's like, wow, this other company came in. Is Nintendo dying? That So the thought process maybe or the feelings of that time were more of was Microsoft successful or did Nintendo fail? And Sony and the PlayStation just mopped up. It wasn't even close. Like the 154 or 155 million consoles, the next best-selling console was the Xbox at 24 million. So you you have to, from Microsoft's perspective, from you know a gamer's perspective, from a business perspective, was it a success? I'm going to say yes. The unique thing that you have to look at here though is this thing lost money right four billion dollars that's nothing to sneeze at like that 
I mean, good. If Sega had four billion dollars in the bank, they would still be manufacturing. There'd be the Dreamcast Six coming out, right? Or uh, well, they probably would have. <laughs> I don't think they were long for the the console world. But my point is, is Sega. If they would have had four billion dollars to just force some success, they might have been able to pull it off. You know what I mean? They might have been able to buy a buy someone, but that kind of money is nothing to sneeze at. So is it a success? 24 million units sold. Halo is an absolute killer app, right? So it's it's selling the console. Lost $4 billion, but got a footprint in. I'm going to say my opinion, and then also I think Microsoft's outlook, is that they knew they were going to lose money, but they were going to get a foothold in the video game industry. And they did that. And they were going to mirror their personal computer business of, hey, we provide Windows. We're a software company with, guess what? Xbox Live. We're going to show you that people do want to play video games online together. And we're going to bridge that gap and make the world a smaller place in terms of video games. Halo 2 showed that. That is probably the ultimate killer app of the Xbox. It is the best-selling game. I want to say like eight and a half million units sold. And if Microsoft does have the nostalgia factor or a fan base, it came roaring with Halo 2. The original Halo was great, don't get me wrong, but now you have something to build upon, and Halo 2 pretty much improved upon just about everything in Halo except the pistol. <laughs> little inside joke there. Um sold a ton and was compatible with Xbox Live. You could play Halo 2 online like we all wanted. Microsoft now had a footprint in the video game industry with a couple million Xbox Live paid subscribers getting that delicious service revenue. If you can get service revenue... People, a monthly reoccurring cost or an annual cost that you're generating that revenue from a user. Third-party games wanting to be developed on it, right? They started getting those, you know, third-party, some, some exclusive, like Knights of the Old Republic. So Bioware, holy smokes, Knights of the Old Republic is awesome. But things kind of came together. So was the Xbox a success? I think so. Was was it a success that came at some cost? 100%. $4 billion, once again, is nothing to sneeze at. Like, this was substantial. And did it set a tone for that audience that was underrepresented before? Your kind of traditional you know, American or European gamer, mainly, mainly American. And I, the reason I need to focus on that is Microsoft is an American company. And, you know, with the video game industry, there wasn't an American piece of hardware. By the way, Japan hated it still, <laughs> you know, Halo one, Halo two, there wasn't enough Halos that you could sell to make the Xbox sell in Japan. They just, they don't care. That shit, they just, it never caught on there. And I know Microsoft spent a lot of money trying to get in there because that's like the, you know, 
Uh, it was almost kind of like you had to. It was a market that basically Sony and Nintendo would have that Microsoft could never get. So they had to focus on the other two biggest markets, which are obviously North America, America, and uh, Europe. So I would say it was a success. It was a success that came with cost, but most importantly, it would lead to what we would talk about in the next podcast. So part two is going to be focusing on the transition from the Xbox to the Xbox 360, HD, high definition gaming, and the explosion of the internet during this time and the impact that it had on the video game industry and the massive sway in Western developers becoming wildly more successful than their Japanese counterparts and the Japanese video game industry being on the back foot for about four years. It was an absolutely incredible time. So that'll wrap up my thoughts on the original Xbox and that time frame and kind of just a few of those stories that I remember, you know, of the original Xbox and ultimately, you know, it being a success that came at a cost, but paved the way for what they were going for with what their next console would be. So thank you for joining me. Uh, this was Big Read. Be on the lookout for part two, which will be in the coming weeks that will focus on the end of the original Xbox and really talking about the Xbox 360 and what that meant for the video game industry as well as Microsoft. Thank you for listening.